We're going to read from the Gospel of John this morning, starting off where we left off on Friday. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter said to the other disciple, or they set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter, a very important part of the gospel, <laughs> and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. He said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But I go to my, bro go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father, to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated in whatever seat you have. Happy Easter, everybody. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Amen. So good to have all of you here, all 2,500 of you here. I'm so happy. This is the best day, and you've never looked better. So well done. My name is Ginny. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmanuel, and it is so good to be with you this morning. Today is the very beginning of a full season in the church calendar, as Beth said at the beginning of the service, if you were here. In Easter, we celebrate not just for one day, as probably many of you have done traditionally throughout your life. That was the case for me until I became Anglican. Um, Easter is 50 days long. We call it the great 50 days uh, because it is greater than Lent, the 40 days of Lent. In that season, we start in like such great solemnity. We come together on Ash Wednesday and we remember our deaths together. What a strange and sad thing to do. And yet that's what we did. We gathered in this room and we remembered our own deaths, the fact that we're going to die. We said to one another, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. And that's kind of the spirit that we walk through Lent with, is this remembrance of our own sin and, and death and all of those things. And then we, it's like hits its climax this weekend when we come to observe Good Friday together and think about Jesus on the cross. 
And yet, Easter is better. Amen? Amen. Easter is so much better than Lent. And the church calendar tells you that by making it 10 days longer than the season of Lent. And that's to say that Easter, in Easter, what we learn is that life is so much better than death. It's so much stronger than death. In fact, the season of Easter sort of swallows up Lent whole in the same way that life in Jesus swallows up death whole. So today we say Christ is risen and we too will rise. Christ has the victory today and every day. Today we just know it a little bit more. N.T. Wright, who is an Anglican bishop, tells us that the kind of spirit we should have today, the spirit of celebration, is that we should all wake up and drink champagne for breakfast. Anybody? Anybody do it? I was going to, but I have to work today. So, so I didn't, but I thought about it. Um, so this season, that's kind of the heart that we have for the next 50 days, is a heart of feasting, a heart of coming together and eating, um, not more, just better, like eating with people who, like people who have eternity in our hearts, drinking like people who have eternity in our hearts. That's how we live into this season. That's sort of our posture as we come together. So we join today with Christians all over the world in every nation and language, and we say our hallelujahs together. If you notice, in this season, we say hallelujah a lot. We say it a lot more than other seasons. And in fact, in Lent, it's tradition to not say hallelujah at all. In that last song we just sang, Man of Sorrows, we've changed the lyrics for Lent to, I think, Lord, I need you. Um, And hallelujah is just so much better. And now we get to sing it. Uh, So we'll be singing that during this season. I love this idea of the hallelujahs going away for Lent. It's such a beautiful thing to be able to kind of bring them to the surface on this day. There's actually a tradition of creating a hallelujah banner in the season of Lent and burying it in a box in the ground, like in your backyard or wherever. And then on Easter morning, you all go out and you dig up your hallelujahs and you like place them in your house. And that's the sort of like gesture we're making this morning by bringing our hallelujahs back. We're putting them up and we're saying like they're spreading them like seeds throughout this season. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Say it all the time. If you have kids, pray it with your kids, you know. Say it throughout your house. Some of us are saying hallelujah this morning out of like real, true joy and hope, the hope that is this day. You're like really feeling it. You feel like you're basking in sort of the light of the resurrection, the light of God. And there are others of us this morning who say our hallelujahs in defiance of really hard season, of maybe even some hopelessness. And I just want to say that like wherever your hallelujahs are coming from this morning, say them. They're all sweet to Jesus. He loves them all. So when you say hallelujah, um, it can come from wherever inside of you, and it is still good. It's a good thing. So we're going to say hallelujah a lot. So this text from the Gospel of John, uh, John is a, is a special gospel. It's pretty different from the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which scholars call the synoptic gospels, meaning they sort of have a similar synopsis of the life of Jesus, whereas John, it's just a little different. It's different enough to kind of like give it its own special category. John is different for many reasons. It's still, the, it's still Jesus. It's still the Jesus we know and love and still a lot of similar stories. And there are a lot of reasons why it's different. But for me, one of the main reasons why it's different is that we see Jesus in sort of a more personal light. Um, one example of that is in the Lord's Supper uh, usually a short moment in the rest of the Gospels. In John's Gospel, it's over four chapters long. 
because Jesus is like holding the disciples close and telling them how much he loves them and that he's going to go away, but it's going to be okay. And then he prays for them. So it's this like beautiful personal moment that we get with Jesus in the Last Supper. And it's not just personal with Jesus, but it's more personal with the disciples as well, as you can see in this moment with Mary at the, at the end of the gospel, um, the story of Lazarus, but also John himself who wrote the gospel. If you remember from sermons in weeks past, the disciples, disciples always in this time were really young. They were probably teenagers, and scholars think that John was likely the youngest. Maybe he was around the age of like 14 or something. So, you know, years later, he's writing this gospel, and he's recounting what it was like to be near Jesus. And how does he refer to himself in his own gospel? The one whom Jesus loved. That's the experience he had with Jesus. He was like, yeah, he loved everybody, but he really loved me. <laughs> Which I think is like a great posture for us to have on this day. Like somehow everyone can be God's favorite, you know? John was convinced at least. So we see John refer to himself as that. We also see him in this Last Supper moment leaning on Jesus. The Bible tells us that he's like kind of snuggling with Jesus as Jesus talks about what it will be like when he's gone and begins to pray for them. John finds himself just like so comfortable in the arms of Jesus. This gospel, I think, the thing that makes it different for me is that it's a love story. This gospel is a love story between Jesus and his friends. And that's sort of the place that we enter in together this place that we enter together this morning. So in this resurrection story in particular, uh, most of them are, uh, many women will come to the tomb where a few women come to the tomb. And in this story, it's just one woman. It's just Mary Magdalene. So we get kind of that personal picture of what's happening uh, at the tomb. She comes to visit Jesus out of this burning desire to just be where his body was. So when we find Mary at the tomb of Jesus, as we read, She's weeping. She's distraught. Uh, she's unwell, as you can imagine she would be. She's sort of caught up in Jesus' death. She's caught up in the hopelessness of the situation. And just when she thought things couldn't get any worse, they did. She gets to the tomb and his body isn't even there. Which can you imagine? You know, if you lose someone that you love and then you go to visit them and they've been stolen what that must have felt like to her, um, the things she wanted to do for him, that she wanted to prepare him for, for burial and all of those things. She couldn't serve him in the way that she wanted to. She's just utterly devastated. John doesn't hold back from describing her emotional response. And when I imagine her, you know, weeping, it says she looked one more time into the tomb, kind of like weeping and peering in. And you kind of imagine that she's just like letting it wash over her again, like wanting to look and see again that he's not there and let it kind of wash over her. But then when she looks in, she doesn't just see an empty tomb. She sees angels sitting there. And they give good news to her, you know, that he's not there and he's, he's, he's somewhere else and it's great news. And she um, can't see it, can't hear it. Like that's how caught up in the hopelessness of his death that she is, understandably. And she says to them what I think are some of the saddest words in all of the Bible. They have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have laid him. This is the utter hopelessness, the very bottom of grief that we can experience as human beings. We're watching Mary live that out right before our eyes. And then Jesus comes to her, and she's still so caught up in his death, so wrapped up in hopelessness that she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. She thinks he's staff. 
And Jesus doesn't falter for this. Rather, I think he fully senses it as um, love for him, that she can't get past the fact that he died, even to see him living. That's how much she really loved him. And so he then brings her into the reality of what's going on. He says her name. He says, Mary. And what does she say back to him? Rabboni, which means teacher, which I think is really important for us, that that's the first word that was uttered to the risen Jesus. The first name given to him is teacher. And I think there's a reason for that, that Jesus is especially in light of his resurrection, always teaching us about what it means that we live in a world where Jesus walked out of a tomb, where he is a resurrected person. He's always calling us deeper into the reality that he conquered death and that we will too. He teaches us to listen for him at this moment in the gospel. He teaches us to look for him in unlikely places. The resurrection is the most surprising thing that has happened in all of human history. I'll say it again. The resurrection was the most surprising thing that has happened in all of human history. So our rightful posture before God, before Jesus, is to expect to be surprised, to expect something amazing to happen. This is why we can pray the way that we pray. This is why we're invited to pray how we pray. We can pray for Ukraine with hope because of who Jesus is, because of what he did. We can pray for justice with hope We can pray for healing for ourselves, for our friends, for the world. We can pray all of those things because of who Jesus is. Jesus teaches us here in this story that he is a God of surprises. I once heard Mary Magdalene called the patron saint of showing up, which I just think is so great. She couldn't see the resurrection, you know. She, like, couldn't see the life that was right there before her. And then she showed up anyway. She came anyway. She had no hope left, but she still came to be with Jesus. Tradition calls Mary Magdalene the apostle to the apostles. And I think it's essential to mention this every year on Easter, this fact um, that Mary was the very first one who got to share the gospel news. And even if you're thinking about the other gospel stories, it's still women, which is a pretty amazing thing if you think about it. Because... Jesus chose women to share the gospel of his resurrection with first. Jesus is turning the tables of what it means to live in a world that is unjustly weighted towards one kind of person. This is what he was doing with his whole life. And of course, this is what he does after his death when he is resurrected. He still brings justice into the world. This is who he is. This was his first act as a resurrected person. And this wasn't a political act. This wasn't like Jesus sticking it to the man, like, hey, I rose a feminist. You know what I mean? Like, that's not what this is. What's happening here is that Jesus rose from the dead, and because he is love, he begins to set all things right. That's just who he is. That's what he does. So, of course, that's what he does in his first act as a resurrected person. At this moment in history, women couldn't even testify in court because they were so untrustworthy. Their voice was not seen as, uh, tr- as trustworthy. They were not seen as people who uh, could give accurate accounts of what has happened. So Jesus is hilarious that he came to women and said, you take the most important news there ever has been and go tell the men, you know? His first resurrected act was to restore a voice and authority to those whom it had been, ta- it had been taken away. 
That's just what he does. It's just who he is. And so, of course, we're seeing that in this first act. So keep showing up like Mary for all of those, those of us who've lost hope, who feel voiceless. Mary teaches us to just keep showing up, keep coming to the tomb. His love and his resurrection will set all things right. So I want to tell you a story, um, a little bit about the Old Testament, because that's what I do, um, that I think is really important for understanding this day. So if you go all the way back to Exodus, when God sets his people free from Israel, and he sets them on this long journey uh, through the wilderness, and God tells them this very elaborate uh, instructions on how to make a temple, a tabernacle, so that God can be with them. God's presence can actually live amongst the people. That's God's heart. That's his desire is to be with his people. So they build this thing and they move it along with them through the wilderness, which had to have taken so long. Um, and, and yet they did it. They make it into the promised land and the tabernacle is still there. It's not until Solomon becomes king that he actually builds the real temple um, that, that stands, uh, that's made not of just tent pieces. And so they have this beautiful temple that God lives in. It's where God's presence is. It's a sign of his love for them. It's a sign of God's chosenness towards them, of their safety and provision, that they belonged somewhere, that in a world full of other gods who were scary, their God loved them and protected them, and they belonged to that God. And the truth is, is that God, they believed if God were ever to leave the temple, it would be the ultimate tragedy the worst thing that could ever happen to them. And it did happen to them. At one point, the king of Babylon comes in and he takes over Israel and he exiles thousands of thousands of God's people into Babylon, this horrible, defiled land that they never wanted to go to. Takes all these people and then he destroys the temple. So you can imagine these people, these Israelites, marching out of the holy land, marching into defiled territory, and, and thinking, you know, maybe that God was dead. In this time, they were polytheistic still. Cut them some slack. We're not now. Um, but they were. And they believed maybe that God, when, when a temple was ransacked by another group of people, that maybe that people group's gods killed their God or at least conquered them. And so as they're marching into Babylon, they're likely thinking, I think, words very similar to Mary's. They've taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have laid him. So they're in Babylon, and all hope is lost. They belong to no one. Their safety is gone. Um, and then, miraculously, a little priest named Ezekiel, who's around my age, actually, um, is sitting by this river in Babylon, and all of a sudden, God shows up. <laughs> and kind of comes out of the sky in this crazy heavenly vehicle and presents himself to Ezekiel that he's here. He's come to be with his people in Babylon. He's come to this defiled land, which was impossible in their mind. Um, Babylon was unclean territory. It was a land of other gods. There was no way God could be alive, that God could come to this new land. And yet there God was in all of God's splendor, not conquered, not dead, but fully present in all of his glory. His people had been found by him in the place they thought they were lost and alone forever. So here's what is important about all of this. The absence of God in the temple should have meant hopelessness, but it actually meant hope. It should have meant absence, but it actually meant presence. 
So what I'll say in closing is this. The empty tomb of Jesus looks so hopeless. It is absent of Jesus. It is absent of God. And yet what the story of God's salvation tells us is that God's perceived absence can actually be a sign of his presence, where he actually is. Mary stares deeply into this empty tomb and sees the worst possible outcome. And Jesus stands behind her waiting for her to see him, waiting to speak to her. The resurrection teaches us that when all seems lost, it's just the very beginning of what God is doing. If we think he's absent, it is because likely he has abandoned the place where we thought he was and has now moved into the place where he needs to be, the place where he's calling you deeper into life with him, a resurrected place. So go, look for him, keep showing up. He will come, he is there. He will surprise you in how he shows up. It will probably not be what you expected, but that's what this day teaches us. So today, I pray that for you, and I hope that today and every day, you and I can join with Mary and say, I have seen the Lord. Amen? Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.